thank you, Gary, and uh, it's been good for you to help us today. We appreciate it. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 11. I almost said Revelation. I'm rather accustomed to saying that on Sunday night. But we have finished it, and tonight we finish uh, John, chapter 11. This event that we will look at in the last 11 verses of John 11 takes place immediately after, at least it begins, immediately after the marvelous resuscitation of Lazarus. Uh, follow with me, if you would. There are Bibles in the pews near you, and the text will develop, uh, the message will develop the text, so I encourage you not only to follow, but to keep the Bible handy and to keep it open. John 11, beginning in verse 47. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council, saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now this he did not say on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God that are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Therefore they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. When we come to the last verse of this chapter, we have come to within less than two weeks of the cross. And the rest of the Gospel of John will deal with the events in the final week of the life of Jesus Christ. The paragraph before us tonight paints a very melancholy and a very sad picture indeed of human nature. There is the de desperate wickedness of the natural human heart. A great miracle had been accomplished. Indeed, John's gospel is written around a number of signs that John selected out of many that he 
could have chosen that demonstrated why Jesus come, why Jesus had come, and the power that he had to perform the mission that had been given to him. The last sign, the resuscitation of Lazarus, a man dead four days, restoring him to life, had been evidence that could not be denied. It was a fact. As the Pharisees gather and talk, they acknowledge the fact of his power. They acknowledge the nature of his works, and yet it is lost on them. They will not believe. Men who will not believe the words and the works of God will not believe anything. I thought today as I read this passage again of a prime example, uh, coincidentally it involved a beggar also named Lazarus that Jesus gave. He told the story for the truth. He did not identify it as a parable. And he spoke of a rich man and a beggar named Lazarus who when both had died, the rich man found himself in Hades and the beggar in the bosom of Abraham. And as he called out across the gulf that was fixed between the torment and the place of paradise, he, the rich man said to Abraham, I have five brothers. I do not want them to come to them place, this place. Let Lazarus be raised from the dead and go and warn them they will believe if one is raised from the dead. And the reply of Abraham was, they have Moses and the prophets, let them believe them. If they will not believe Moses, they will not believe even if one should be raised from the dead. And certainly the resuscitation of Lazarus is evidence of that, as was later the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the desperate wickedness of the human heart. We see also the ignorance in which God's enemies act. They were absolutely and totally convinced that as the custodians of God's work among His chosen people, the Jews, they knew what was best. It never even dawned on them that God's way could be communicated to them from anyone outside of their immediate circle. That never dawned on them that it was even possible. And so they acted to protect their own interest under the cover of protecting God's interests, and as a result of their actions, their worst fears came to pass. We see also what importance men attach to outward things. Now, I've not gotten into the message yet. This is still the introduction. And... In the, in the text, we heard that many of them went up to Jerusalem early to purify themselves. In point of fact, before they could partake of the Passover, three different kinds of ceremonial cleansing were required. And they had gone up early so that they might be perfectly ceremonially clean and ritualistically ready to participate in the Passover. 
And the topic of consideration was the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of them were ceremonially going by the rules, making sure they were spotless and clean for the Passover and plotting the murder of Jesus Christ at the same time. There is something very significant here. It says that the chief priests and the Pharisees called a council. That would be rather like saying that the Amal militia and the Hezbollah in Lebanon called a council and got together. They were the most radical kind of enemies and yet they found themselves with a common enemy in Jesus of Nazareth and they were willing to put all of their differences aside so that they might destroy him. Now look with me, if you would, at the text. Notice, first of all, in verses 47 and 48, here is the confusion of the priests. They got together, these ancient enemies. And indeed, they were confused. The only thing they knew was that something had to give, and in their opinion, if Jesus went on as he was, all of the people would follow him, and the Romans would, I quote, come and take away both our place and our nation. The wonderful event at Bethany, the raising from the dead of Lazarus, had forced their hands. They could not let things go on as they were. They felt like they had to do something or all the people would follow him. Now the Pharisees and... Uh, in all fairness, the Pharisee, we should not use the word Pharisee in relation to the New Testament like a dirty word. They were really good people in almost any way that you could measure goodness. I promise you one thing, they kept to a standard of personal conduct, personal righteousness that no one of us would be willing to try to keep. They were non-political they really did not care who governed the nation so long as they could be free to observe the law as they understood it. Now it was the sect of the Pharisees, it was their wise men who had built a hedge around the Ten Commandments. Their reasoning was very simple the worst thing they could possibly do would be to violate the Ten Commandments. Now, in order to avoid breaking one of the Ten Commandments, they took each one of those commandments and they inferred and implied from that commandment other commandments, and they reasoned that if they build the hedge thick enough and they kept all of those laws, it would not be possible for them to break the Ten Commandments. And by the time that they had gotten through, they had a list, 614 commandments. And every Pharisee had them memorized and could begin with any one and go backward to the first one and go forward to the last one. All they cared about was that they were safe and protected and allowed to keep the law as they understood it. The Sadducees were, on the other hand, intensely 
political. They were the liberals, not in, uh, it, as in calling somebody a name, but they were just plain liberal. They were in a constant theological controversy with the Pharisees. They didn't believe much of anything, but they were very political. They would collaborate with Rome or anyone else who would allow them to exercise certain power in the matters of the Jewish community. The Sadducees had deserted the idea of Messiah. They had given it up because it was politically inconvenient. It was the Sadducees who said to Pilate, when he said, would you have me crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. The only standard they cared about was their own comfort and the survival of their own power. The plain truth is that man's unbelief is a deeply seated disease far more deeply seated than is generally reckoned and acknowledged. It itself is protection against logic. It is protection against reason, against argument, against moral persuasion, and nothing can melt it down except the grace of God. It never occurred to them that God might have a solution that first he did not reveal to them. They were coldly self-seeking, these Sadducees. They were desiring only their own place and their own power. And it is most interesting to note that what they feared came to pass. What did they say in their confusion? They said, unless we do something about Jesus, all men will believe in him and the Romans will take both our place and our nation. And so they took action to protect their place and their nation. And less than 40 years later, in A.D. 70, when the Roman Emperor Titus laid siege to Jerusalem. When he was through, they, per, they fulfilled the prophecy by leaving not one stone of the temple standing upon another, and Titus ordered that the temple area be plowed to make sure that it was destroyed, so he thought, forever. What they feared came to pass, and I might add, that it will always be that way with compromise. In matters of principle, in matters of morality, in matters of light and darkness, goodness and evil, compromising the light, turning away from the truth, watering down, making peace with the enemy of God will always end in disaster. It is reminiscent of Paul's statement that professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Notice in verses 49 to 52, here is the certainty of the prophecy. 
And indeed to me this is an intriguing uh, episode. Caiaphas was possessed of a cold-blooded dynamism. He cut through the confusion. He belittled and insulted the high court of the Jews, the fellow, uh, the, his fellows who had been elevated to the Sanhedrin, the 70 uh, men recognized as the wisest and greatest men of the nation. And he said uh, what men of a bullyish tendency usually say when they'd rather not argue the merits of something. He said, you guys don't know anything. In academics, Ray, I call it the no reputable scholar syndrome. You know, when you can't answer the argument, just say, no reputable scholar believes that. That is what Caiaphas did with his, bro with his brothers on the Sanhedrin. What an, what an irony it is. When Caiaphas speaks, he says, don't you know that it is better for one man to die rather than for the whole nation to die? He spoke volumes of truth, and he did not even know it. He was high priest. He prophesied, even though he did not know that he was speaking God's words. According to the way Moses established the high priesthood, the descendant of Aaron, who was most senior, would become the high priest and would retain the high priesthood until his death. But the nation had stooped so low that Rome, who was almost as good at seeking uh, what is uh, euphemistically called today revenue enhancement, Rome found that they could get people to stand in line to buy the right to be high priest. And so every year they sold it to the highest bidder. Caiaphas and his father-in-law Annas, between the two of them, held the high priesthood probably for 30 years. They must have had a lot of money and a lot of pride. So he had bought the high priesthood. It was contemptible politics at its worst. And whatever it took to eliminate Jesus Christ, they felt like if they could eliminate him, they could eliminate the threat to their way of life. Also, I consider this incident in verses 49 through 52 a very interesting example of the verbal inspiration of Scripture. Listen to the observation of the uh, Lutheran scholar Linsky. Caiaphas is not forced in any way, but the words that come to his lips and that say just what he wants to say are words that also say just what God wants said in this assembly of the chief representatives of the Jews. They want to slay Jesus for their purpose. God will let them slay Jesus for His purpose. In stating His purpose so as to win the consent of the Sanhedrin, 
Caiaphas so formulates his words that he unconsciously states also God's purpose. This, John says, was not accidental, but it was due to God. Here we have a peculiar case, Linsky goes on to say, of verbal inspiration. It is peculiar in that it is unconscious. It is inspiration in that what is uttered and in the way it is uttered, we have what God wants uttered and in the way He wants it uttered. The speaker may or may not grasp what he is uttering. In 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, we find that even the prophets of God did not always understand their own words. Caiaphas, without intent to do it, by virtue of his position, by virtue of the fact that the old way had not yet been destroyed, the veil in the temple had not been yet rent, he stood in the place of Aaron and God spoke through him of his eternal purpose. And then notice that there is a striking blindness. Caiaphas tells them to seek one thing. They seek their own interest and therefore Jesus must die. They must do away with Him. Never mind who He is, never mind what He has done, He is worthy of death. It is a tragic example of what the love of tradition can do to men. In verses 53 and 54, we have the continuation of the plan. That is the continuation of God's plan. In verse 53, it is clear, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. It is clear from, that from this day forward, as far as they were concerned, the decision had been made and Jesus Christ would die. They planned it, but God still was not ready. And this is yet another example of the like we have seen in John repeatedly, of a time when they tried to lay their hands on him, but the time was not right in God's scheme of things. And so he went away to a quiet place, the region of Ephraim, north of Jerusalem. And I wonder what pressure he must have been in during those quiet days away from the public eye, knowing that day by day the end of his earthly ministry was drawing near. All the world waited at Jerusalem. They had decided they would do it legally. They would grant him due process. And after a speedy trial, they would lynch him. But all of the while, God's plan was being carried out. In verses 55 through 57, we come in a brief statement very near the last days of his life. I find it significant that it is called in this verse, in verse 55, 
the Passover of the Jews. It was their day of greatest celebration. They had other feasts. They celebrated them faithfully, but it had been on the shores of the Red Sea with the army of the greatest nation on the earth at their heels that God had demonstrated both His great power and His choice of them as His people by delivering them and they passed through the waters of the Red Sea following the night of the destruction of the Passover, the destruction of the firstborn of Egypt. But now it has become in the aged John's mind as he looks back to the circumstances of his people during his youth, it had become the Passover of the Jews. They underestimated Jesus. They thought, as they talked among themselves, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? They thought that he might not come for fear. What they did not realize, that when the time for him to come arrived, nothing on earth would be able to stop him. And if God ordered him to go, then no threat would be able to deter him. I am reminded of Martin Luther. It is said of Martin Luther that he was a man who hurled defiance at cautious souls who sought to hold him back from being so bold in his quest for the reformation of the church. When he was ordered to go to the city of Worms there to defend himself because of his attacks on the excesses of the organized church of that day, that he said that having arrived at a proper conclusion, he would go despite all cardinals, popes, kings, and emperors together with all the devils in hell. They told him that if he went, he would be under attack. He said, I will go to Worms even though there be as many devils there as there are tiles on the rooftops. When told that the Duke, George, who was an ally of the Pope, would seize him and kill him, he said, I would go if it rained, Duke George's. It was not that Luther was not afraid, for often he was. It is said of Luther that at the Diet of Worms where he was examined and where he defended his faith, that often some of his most magnificent statements were made with quavering voice and shaking knees. And when the Diet was over and he was called on to recant, he looked the judges squarely in the face and he said, unless I am convinced by the scriptures and by plain reason I can do no other, here I stand, God help me. And the history of the world has been different because he did. More of us 
today, I fear, are like those of whom Jesus said they were willing to strain out a gnat from their ceremonial drink. And they were willing to swallow the camel of rebellion against God. Religion consumed with outward things never pleases God. His standards are eternal. We see in this passage the will of man as opposed to the will of God. Unbelief, like faith, cannot remain the same. It cannot remain static. It must grow. It is progressive. They will not see. They will not repent. They will not believe. And finally, His power demonstrated by the high crime of bringing Lazarus back from the dead has galvanized their hatred to the point that they are willing to do anything to preserve their own power and their own way. I think it is inevitable that whenever anyone decides that finally in this matter whatever this matter is God has committed to them the primary responsibility for doing what scripture says only he will do when they begin to believe what people say in flattery. When they get to respect their own judgment, their own group more than they respect the courtesy and the dignity that are due to all people, then disaster is never far away. It is certainly true that there are some things that are absolutely black and white. There are some things that we are commanded to stand on that we dare not compromise under severe penalty because the choice is not ours. God has made the choice. But we always need to remember that whenever it falls to us to apply our best reason, our best judgment, and our best understanding and it is up to us to make the choice and make the decision there is always the danger that we like they will not recognize the Word of God the way of God the path he would have us take if it comes from the wrong source I'm convinced that we never meet, I never meet, and you never meet anybody from whom you cannot learn something. All others are our teachers. And all others stand with us at the level ground around the foot of the cross. And in God's sight... 
Their stature is as great as ours. Their value is as great as ours. And He loves them as much as He loves us. It has been well said that when anything becomes institutionalized, the purpose becomes, after that, to preserve, protect, and defend the institution. The God that we serve is in utter and absolute control of all things. He is not duty-bound to work with and through only those who identify with us. It has long been His pattern that if those whom He has chosen and appointed do not and will not fulfill the task, He will raise up someone else to do it. I've had cause to reflect in recent uh, months on my heritage, religiously, uh, my religious heritage. My uh, people in my family were in Augusta, Georgia in 1845 when the Southern Baptist Convention was formed. I am a third generation Southern Baptist preacher. Five in my immediate family have served him in that capacity. Three have gone on to be with the Lord. There remain only two of us. So I am Southern Baptist, born and bred, and uh, at the risk of uh, euphemism, I'll be one day Southern Baptist dead. And yet I have come to realize in recent years that God is perfectly willing and perfectly able to get the job done by using someone else if we don't get our act together. The source of all wisdom is a sovereign God who has given us His Word and He has promised us that in His Word He has told us everything that He wants us to know about our faith. Everything necessary for living. I support every phase of the ministry of the Southern Baptist Convention. But I do not genuflect before any of it. And I do my best to remember that when God makes a decision, He does not consult with us. He rather communicates His will to us. And then He says, now get the job done. I think it is certainly true that there were many when Jesus Christ was on the earth who were not malicious, who were not filled with hatred, who had not deserted the spirit in the heart of their faith, who sought God in the right way, and yet when they looked around, between them and God and His Word stood their tradition and their way of doing things. It is my opinion that one reason Baptists and in the context of the United States Southern Baptists have been so effective over these centuries, over this last century and a half, is that when we look at the world, the Word of God stands between us and all other things. We must constantly 
evaluate our own motives, our own decisions, our own plans as individuals, as congregations, as a denomination, not by judging the impact economically on our agencies or institutions or state conventions or anything else, but we must always and ever evaluate it all by the touchstone of the Word of God. And whatever we find ourselves doing in any way at any time that does not fall in line with our primary assignment needs to be jettisoned and we need to get on to something else. Unbelief, like faith, is not static. It's progressive. And I would challenge you when you find yourself in that rather uh, interesting and curious position that I find myself in from time to time of being absolutely, totally persuaded that I am right for no good reason, then I challenge us all to be willing to ask the question, is it the will of man or is it the will of God? May we pray. Heavenly Father, it is so very easy for me to write, wrap robes of righteous indignation around myself when I consider what they did in the living presence of Messiah and how seeing proof positive of who He was and what He came to do they willfully rebelled. But Lord, day by day you present me with opportunities. Day by day you nudge me in directions that I refuse to go. And I ask you to forgive me. And I ask you to give me a sensitivity certainly to the people around me but most of all to your spirit so that when you bring in my path what you want me to do, I will not brush it aside because I already know what needs to be done. Father, may your Holy Spirit search us and try us. See if there be any way in us that does not please you and lead us ever more closely in that everlasting way. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing as a hymn of invitation, hymn 351. I do not know your heart. I do not know your need. But I do know that even though it may seem illogical, at times it may seem downright irrational, it may not make any sense at all when the Holy Spirit of God has brought to your heart His call for your life. It is vitally important that you respond when He calls. It may be that you would find yourself called by Him from one vocation into another. If so, you certainly need to at least as far as your decision-making goes. You need to nail it down and say, Lord, the answer is yes, 
Now what's the question? It may be that living here, you seek God's will for a church home. I pray for you that you will know where that is because it most certainly is true that He wants you active in a local church. I urge you to join that church without delay. It is very easy. It costs absolutely nothing to be an observer. But God wants you somewhere. He wants you active. He wants you involved. If this is that church, I invite you tonight to meet me here at the front and to place both your life and your membership here. I invite you to trust the Lord Jesus Christ with your heart and life asking Him for forgiveness of sins, taking Him as Savior and Lord. I invite you to meet me here to pray to that end. I invite you to let us know that you have been saved, to make it public as He commanded. Whatever He would have you do, do it right now, do it quickly, as we stand and while we sing.